that's on the sheet of paper in his hand. As we turn to Psalm 86, a reminder that um, oftentimes the Psalms, uh, individual Psalms, are structured uh, sort of like the logo for Target. Have any of you all ever heard of the store Target? Um, it's red and white is their design scheme, and the logo is a Target. And, um, and it's a series of concentric circles, right? And there's a bullseye. There's a target in the center. And so Psalm 86, um, like many psalms, has its thesis statement, has its central idea in the center. Now, the psalms come to us in a very ancient uh, way of writing and format and poetry, and so our minds don't automatically understand them. I mean, frankly speaking, my mind doesn't automatically understand contemporary poems, much less ancient poems. So I want to draw our attention to, especially to, verse 11. And I believe this is the thematic, the topical, not necessarily by verse, number, or word count, but this is the thematic center of Psalm 86. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. So what's going on here and what's so important for us to see is how the psalmist cries out to God in a time of trial. He meditates and reflects on God's goodness and mercy and grace. And at the uh, heart of this prayer is an acknowledgement and an understanding through his prayer that God will use suffering and trials to sanctify him, to give him wisdom to give him holiness, and to give him faith. Teach me that I may walk and unite my heart to fear. That's the promise of Psalm 86. Psalm 86, a prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you, you are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever, for great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered me, my soul, from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. And they do not set you before them. 
But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Join me now in our prayer for illumination that uh, the Spirit might only allow us to understand these words but to see how they're fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words for thy name's sake. Amen. Our New Testament lesson this morning comes to us from the book of the Revelation. Uh, We will be reading chapter 15. Uh, If you have your pew Bible handy, you can find it on page 1036. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a glass of sea mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy." All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Please join me in the prayer for illumination printed in your bulletin. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen.
Please be seated. Well, the outline uh, in our worship bulletin, I believe, if I submitted it in time, yes, there is an outline in our worship bulletin, uh, follows these concentric circles from the outside to the inside. Now, you ask uh, 100 people to outline uh, a poem, and you'll probably get 100 different outlines. Uh, but this was uh, provided to me by my Old Testament professor, uh, Mark Furtado, who has a lovely commentary on the Psalms. Very accessible if you're looking for such a thing. But um, uh, this outline uh, basically has verse numbers for each of the groups that cover these themes. So we're working from the beginning to the middle and from the end to the middle as well at the same time. First, the cry of the psalmist, Lord, save your servant. And then God's unfailing love. And then the day of trouble. Glory to God's name, given both by the nations and by the psalmist. And finally, the central theme and verse, teach me to honor your name. Well, I want to start today with a question. What is running through your mind when you pray to God, and particularly when you pray to God for help? When you're facing a difficulty or a trial, you're asking God for something, what, what, what are you thinking about? And it's an interesting question that's raised for me by Psalm 86, because I think our psalm wants to, wants to train us, wants to teach us, as that verse 11 says, to think in a certain way. In my experience, and I'll just speak for myself, I have the bully pulpit, when I'm suffering, when I'm in pain, when I cry out to God, I'm thinking about my suffering. <laughs> I'm thinking about my pain. Maybe I'm thinking how I'm a little frustrated with God. Hello, where are you? And Psalm 86 comes to us as a model prayer for help. It's great. It's great to use this psalm as our prayer when you're struggling, when you're in a day of trouble. Remember, and we'll step back on occasion for the big picture, book three of the Psalter, Psalm 73 to Psalm 89, is a big day of trouble. That's the context for God's people. And the central concern of Psalm 86 is with the heart of the psalmist. That's what verse 11 tells us. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Teach, sanctify, unify, heal. In times of trouble, God's servant cries out confidently for God's assistance. He asks for strength, for help, for deliverance. But he also prays that God would use trials to transform him, to instruct him, to sanctify him, to change him. God's grace and provision, his deliverance changes everything. It changes us as well as our circumstances. And so think of the three elements of this central verse. Teach me your way. Reveal, instruct. Help me learn something through this trial. The servant of God also knows he is a sinner in need of forgiveness. That the line between good and evil always goes through every individual heart. There's never, even though he prays as a, as a godly, innocent, faithful person, there's never a perfectly innocent party. He knows that God may be rebuking him through this trial. 
teach me your way. And that trials are often used by God to bring his people to repentance and restoration. That I may walk in your truth. The truth here is the same word in the name of God, his, his faithfulness, his emmet. The truth here is God's faithfulness. The psalmist is asking that he might be as faithful to God as God has been faithful to him. Amend my ways, sanctify me, that I may walk in your truth. So teach me what your truth is. Instruct me, give me wisdom, then sanctify me, transform my actions, and then finally unite my heart to fear your name. To fear the Lord is faith, brothers and sisters, in the Old Testament. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And a unified heart is a heart that's been transformed by the Spirit of God. It's a heart that's been born again. It's a regenerate heart. But I thought that happened at the beginning of my Christian life. Yes, it happened at the beginning of your Christian life. And it happens every day. As you put the old man to death and the new man comes to life. To fear the name of the Lord is the Lord's glory. The, the name of the Lord was revealed to Moses in Exodus 34, verse 6. And that verse from the Torah, from Exodus, is quoted directly in verse 15 of our psalm. Interesting, isn't it? Teach me to fear your name. Oh, the one that I'm going to quote in a few lines. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is the name of the Lord. The Lord's name is mercy. And the psalmist prays that he might walk in that grace and mercy. This knowledge of God's name, however partial, however weak, however needing additional instruction, is indeed the basis of the psalmist's prayer in times of trouble. It is God's merciful character that gives us hope, that gives us reason to cry out to him, to pray to him. That's the living, breathing, beating heart of this psalm. But before uh, we turn to unpacking this profound idea uh, directly in each of the five subsequent parts, I want to step back and see the big picture again of book three. Book three of the Psalter runs from verse, or rather Psalm 73 to Psalm 89. We're at Psalm 86. We're almost to the end of it. I don't expect you to remember what book three is or even have heard of it before. Um, interestingly, this is the only psalm of David. This is the only psalm that has as its title a psalm of David in the entirety of book three. The psalmist, the ancient Hebrews, are telling us something with those titles. And interestingly, also, I might be the only one in the room that thinks these things are interesting, but bear with me. When book two ended in Psalm 72, it said the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Oops. So you were told that the prayers of David are ended, and then you come against another prayer of David. This is the first time that happens. But it happens other times. And what that means is that books one and two have David collections. They're almost entirely David psalms. And then that changes going forward. So the collection of the Psalms of David ended at Psalm 72. But still, David's Psalms are used, and they're used by design and with intent and with purpose. Book 3 is very much written from the perspective of exile. And let me sum it up with one verse from Psalm 73, its opening psalm, and one verse from Psalm 79, 89, its closing psalm. Psalm 73, book 3, starts with a stumble. Truly God is good to Israel, 
to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. God, you're so good. You're so wonderful. You've established Solomon on the throne of King David. All generations, the son of David will always be on the throne. Crash. And in Psalm 89, all the promises to David are recounted and about halfway through in verse 38, he says, but now you have cast off and rejected. You're full of wrath against the Messiah. You're full of wrath against your own son, against the Lord's anointed. And you have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. The crown of David is in the dust. Times have changed. And between Psalm 73 and Psalm 89, there's a lot of messiness and bloodshed and destruction and disease and the tabernacles ransacked and there's fires and it's horrible. There's blood literally running in the streets. The whole of this book is a day of trouble. And here in the midst of it, in the midst of Psalms of Asaph and Korah and Ethan the Ezraite, is a golden oldie, a Psalm of David. Almost all commentators say, this Psalm is entirely unoriginal. Practically every verse in this psalm is found earlier in this altar, in a different psalm. It's like you asked uh, ChatGPT to create a psalm of David, and it looked at its list of words from the psalms of David, and it would make Psalm 86. I haven't tested that theory yet, but Kyle, don't do that before the end of the sermon. But is it unoriginal? Context is everything. Why do you put golden oldies on the radio? There are entire channels on them. Takes you back. Probably sounds a little bit like Chuck Berry or Elvis Presley. Ah, the 50s. Good old days. Days of innocence. To the Hebrews, I mean. This old Psalm of David in this difficult time. A psalm out of date. But a psalm reminding us about David the Lord's anointed when we're about to read that the crown is off the head of his family what should we remember about David I'll leave that question out there till the end so first the psalmist cries out at the boundaries here at the outer edges save your servant in verse 1 through 4 and 16 and 17 the psalm opens and closes with a cry to God for salvation a request for God to listen, to answer, to preserve, to save, to show grace, and to give new life, to gladden the soul. Now, it might seem obvious. I'm going to God for a request, but I have to ask him to listen to my request. This seems redundant. A prayer for salvation should ask for salvation. But it is basic, brothers and sisters, and true and fundamental, and we should learn from this first basic step. Because the day of trouble of whatever sort tends to cause us to doubt God's promises. Right? That's what Psalm Book 3 is doing. Feet are slipping. The crown is in the dirt. There's a lot of doubt. One way to think about this in poetry in, in, in the Psalter is disorientation. Things are not orderly. A hymn is a beautiful orderly thing that praises God for being in charge. Psalm 8 is a beautiful hymn. You can read it later today. It's a psalm of orientation. But some of disorientation, chaos. David has to ask God to listen. He cries out because he thinks God's not paying attention. Turn to me, he says. He implies that he feels like God has turned away from him. 
In the closing verse, he asks for a sign of God's favor. This is a mark of his doubt when you ask God for a sign. The psalm has confessed God's attributes, his mercy, his kindness, his steadfast love, his faithfulness. But David closes, yes, God, I know this is all true, but just do me a solid here. I need a little help. <laughs> just show me, show me something good. This is a model prayer for deliverance in its honesty. If we were all being honest with ourselves, we would confess that every time we ask God for something, our faith is in fact imperfect. Every time we ask for something, our faith is in fact tinged with doubt. If God loves me so much, why is me, he put me in such a difficult situation? Elsewhere, David cries out for God to show him mercy because others are mocking his faith. He thinks his God will deliver him, Psalm 72, right? This is uh, reminiscent of the mockers around the cross. Oh, come down from there. He said his God would save him. Jesus Christ is the only one who never doubted in a time of trial. He's the only one who commended his spirit to the Lord when he was hanging on a cross. And so Christ's perfect faith is for you, brothers and sisters, when you are in a time of trial and you are doubting. He is faithful when you are faithless. David cries out, rise up, O Lord, vindicate yourself. And here David confesses, he needs God to vindicate, to demonstrate his love for him. Because right now, he's not feeling it. Now before we move to the second point, note that David gives solid grounds for his request that God would hear his petition. He starts with himself. Again, this is the way the prayer goes this is the trajectory of the prayer for deliverance. We start with the trouble we're in, because that's all that we can feel. We're overwhelmed by it. Not that he is perfect and sinless, but that he is needy and he is faithful. Lord, and, and the word for comes up again and again and again. Incline your ear, for I am poor and needy. Be gracious to me, for to you do I cry. All the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. You see how he's giving reasons to God? David, in this psalm, calls himself God's servant repeatedly. There's a covenant bond here. There's a basis for this request, a relationship on which going to God is established. Throughout this psalm, God is repeatedly called Lord and you all have heard this before, I'm sure, but sometimes in, in the NIV or the ESV, sometimes when we come across the word Lord in the Old Testament, it's Yahweh. It's the name of the Lord. And that's the all caps version here in verse 1. O Lord, all caps. But then we see in verse 3, it's normal capitalization. O Lord. That's a different word, Hebrew word. That's the word for master, for Adonai. And so David uses that word a lot in this psalm. In fact, he uses it uh, seven times. That's more than any other psalm in the whole Psalter. He calls God his master here because he's emphasizing that he's a servant. Lord, save your servant. And this sets up a key pivot. A key pivot in verse 5. He's given all these reasons why God should listen to his prayer. And here we move to our second section. Now he's going to give a reason based not on his need, not on his faithfulness, not on his persistence, but now he's going to give a reason based on God. For you, O Lord, are good 
and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon your name. In verse 15, in the parallel section, David again looks to God's attributes. And this is where he quotes that name of the Lord, which comes to us from Exodus chapter 34, from that encounter with Moses. You, O Lord, verse 15, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Often the Bible just sort of alludes to previous verses. This is a, a, a letter-for-letter quote. David's cry for help is grounded not ultimately in his own faithfulness, in his service, but in his master's faithfulness and goodness, God's favor, God's grace, God's mercy. Brothers and sisters, isn't it amazing how quickly we forget that Christianity is a religion of forgiveness and grace and mercy? Isn't it amazing how quickly for we forget that we are all sinners each and every day in need of God's grace? It is valuable for us here, and I want to go back to that fact that, that this is a golden oldie, this is a Psalm of David. It brings to mind everything we know about David. The great singer of Psalms, King David, is, if anything, a sinner saved by grace. David's reputation, the entire battle with Absalom, his son who rose up against him, is premised on his sin, his illegitimacy as king, because he had violated God's law so violently. Psalm 2, behold, my son, enthroned, crowned. Psalm 3, a psalm in the time when Absalom was attacking David. The whole point of the Psalter is that David is a sinner saved by grace. Psalm 51 presents David in all his horrific, manipulative, murderous, lustful vengeance. Have mercy, O God, according to your abundant mercy. Wash me thoroughly, cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil. So that you may be justified in your words, blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. Did my mother conceive me? The greatest heroes of the faith are the greatest sinners. It's true from beginning to end of the Bible. Martin Luther illustrated famously in Latin, because he was an educated fellow and a German, uh, that we are sinners saved by grace with the famous expression, simultaneously a sinner and a saint. Simul justus et peccator. Now that's, that's a theological concept. God justifies the wicked. He declares sinners to be perfectly righteous in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. That's a theological concept. The Bible illustrates that concept in the stories of saints from beginning to end. Adam, Eve, Abraham, David, the judges, Samson, Solomon, all the kings and all the people of Israel. Again and again and again, the Bible is a picture of Simul Justus et Peccator, sinners and saints. The church is a hospital for sinners, a place of forgiveness. And we forget this in times of trial. We get ashamed. We don't want to share our sin or our afflictions with brothers and sisters in Christ. In our folly, we try to turn the church into a display case for our holiness. Maybe God's punishing me. Well, yeah, maybe he is. But he loves sinners. 
God's law and his gospel are what bring us back again and again and again. His perfect holiness, his steadfast love. You come here every Sunday because this is where you will hear a legal, official, public declaration that you are not guilty. That your sins are forgiven. In the name of Christ and by the authority of his word, I declare to you that your sins are forgiven and you are not under the condemnation of God. Top two my favorite things I get to say every Sunday, along with the Lord's Supper, tables for people who are weak and need the nourishment of Christ. I got together with an old friend today that I went to seminary with. His name's Steve, if you don't know him, but I uh, haven't seen him in 25 years, and um, Steve's a great guy. We had a lot of good times. And Steve reminded me, something I knew, but he reminded me something we discussed a few weeks ago, as we're all prophets, priests, and kings who bear the name of Christ, we can all preach the gospel to each other. Steve turned to me and said, you're forgiven. We can all say that every day to our parents, to our children, to our friends. We get to say that every week, every day. The church is a hospital for sinners. Exodus 34. Why is the name of the Lord revealed there? Because when the Lord came and revealed his holy law to his people, before the ink was dry, before the chisel was cool, they broke the law. And Moses had to crumble up those tablets and sprinkle them in water so they could drink the bitter dregs of their sin. And God wanted to consume that people in his wrath and start over. Moses, let's just start from scratch. These people are too wretched. Moses said, no. I made a promise. I'm going to hold you to it. To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And to us, because we were in their loins, that we would be your people. And God revealed his holy name of mercy and grace that is slow to anger. What a blessing. So the psalmist wants us to remember Exodus 34. He wants us to remember that God's people have been in dark places before. The day of trouble has come. And he is merciful. Point three is very short. Verse seven and verse 14. Trouble strikes. In the day of trouble I call upon you, for you answer me. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seek my life. They do not set you before them. Two very quick points of special note here. Trouble strikes God's people. Trouble strikes God's people. It's not a sign of God's displeasure with you. God's love, his mercy, his faithfulness does not prevent us from trials. There are trials in part because there are insolent men. The psalmist calls them haters. To use a contemporary phrase in the final verse. From Psalms 1 and 2, we have seen this conflict between the faithful and the kings of the earth, the wicked. This is essential to the story of redemption in the Bible. So the first lesson, troubles come, they will. Second lesson, cry out to God. Don't delay. God wants to hear from you. He knows your struggles. He doesn't learn anything new when you cry out to him, obviously. 
And yet the way of faith is the way of reliance upon the Lord. And he wants you to not focus on yourself, your suffering. He wants you to focus on him, on his grace, on his mercy. That God is bigger than every trial that comes your way. This too shall pass. My grace is sufficient. As Christians, we're too quick sometimes to say, oh yeah, God will be good, there's heaven at the end. No. That's not what this psalm's about. This psalm's about the here and now. God delivers his people. He will be there with you through this trial. And he will come to your assistance. Remember the instruction at the heart of this psalm, verse 11, is the healing of our heart. God may teach us and heal us and make us whole through this trial. That brings us to the fourth point, which is really getting to the heart of the whole thing. And towards the center of this psalm, we've already seen the name of the Lord has been quoted. The Lord's name, which he revealed to Moses in Exodus 34. So this psalm is about the name of the Lord. And as we come to the center of it, we see uh, giving glory to God's name. Giving glory to the character, the essence of who God is, becomes the central focus in verses 8 through 10 and 12 through 13. Did you notice that after the psalmist asks God to unite my heart to fear your name? He says, unite my heart. And in the next verse, he says, I give thanks to you, O Lord God, with my whole heart. Isn't that cool? God's made the heart whole. In gratitude. He's made the heart whole. In gratitude. And he's been led to that place of giving thanks. Why does God allow trial, sin in the world? Why does he allow sickness, death, disease, warfare, crime, cancer, carjackings, haters? I don't know. Anyone who tells you they know, they're wrong. Don't listen to them. But I know that God delivers from these things. I know that he delivers from death itself, the final and greatest enemy. And I know that he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I know that after he reveals his grace, his holy name, which is forgiveness, then he, through his spirit, allows us to receive that grace and fills our hearts with gratitude. I know that he makes me whole. He makes you whole. How does the psalmist's whole heart show gratitude to God? It recites his name. For great is your steadfast love. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Our praise is our gratitude. You are here today to glorify the name of God. Notice that both the psalmist and all the nations give glory to God's name. All the nations. There's this international thrust here. And this is a reminder of something we saw a few weeks ago... That God's mercy to his people doesn't terminate on his people alone. This is the mystery of the gospel. God saves us not just to save us. God saves us to save other people. God delivered Israel to save the nations. That's the mystery of the gospel and the Gentile inclusion. And it's here in Psalm 86. The wondrous things God does here is not a reference to the mighty works of salvation. Or or rather is a reference to those mighty works of salvation. The plagues. The exodus. Those are the wondrous works of God. And even in the Exodus, we read that God did these things so the nations might know and see his glory. 
Now, the psalmist is not a universalist. We make this mistake today. If God loves the nations, then all the nations are saved, and we don't have to worry about hell. That's a really uncomfortable thing to talk about. The psalmist is not a universalist. The Bible is not universalistic. There is a judgment. Not all will be saved. You must turn to the Lord in faith. But all will be represented on that great day of the Lord. No nation, no tongue, no people, no tribe will fail to be represented there. That great throng of worshipers will be fully cosmic and fully global. No sinner or Gentile is beyond the grasp of his mercy or grace. Psalm 87, which we'll get to in two weeks after Pentecost Sunday. Psalm 87, among those who know me, I mentioned Rahab and Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, Cush. This one was born there. Wait, wait, wait. The Philistines were born in Zion? The Cushites were born in Zion? And of Zion it will be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord registers his people. This one was born there. And God says here, the nations are saved because I made them. In one important sense, they were all born in God. We all were. That's what sin is. It's denying that we are all born children of God by creation. And this brings us. This glory to the name of God brings us to the fifth and central point. Psalm verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart. Unite my heart to fear your name. David, the singer of psalms, is the blessed man of God. He is the one spoken of in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. That's the idea, anyway. He's God's servant who trusts in the Lord, who is godly, who lifts up his soul, his whole life to the Lord, who seeks his face in time of trouble. And yet, David knows himself to be a man of a broken heart. He knows the line between good and evil goes through his heart. He knows himself to be a sinner, to be a double-minded man. Oh, I love the Lord. Oh, I'll campaign for his glory. I'll defeat the Philistines. And whoa, you see Bathsheba? A little distracted there, David. He knows that a whole heart only comes from God. And he knows that even through his trials, through his day of trouble, God is crafting that heart within him. It is through these trials, through these faithful prayers and petitions, that God teaches us. Even Christ, though sinless. Excuse me. Listen to this carefully. Even Christ though sinless, was perfected through his suffering. How does a sinless son of God have to be perfected? He became the perfect savior. He became a perfectly sympathetic priest who knows firsthand everything you've ever suffered because he died bearing your sins on his soul. It is through our suffering, brothers and sisters, that we are made like Christ, that we are perfected, that we are sanctified. It is through our suffering that God teaches us his way, that he gives us holiness, that he sanctifies us, that he corrects our steps when they get off the path, and that he unifies and purifies and unites our hearts into one. Jesus prayed in the garden, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. My Father, if this cannot 
pass unless I drink it. Your will be done. And for the third time, he went away and prayed again using the same words. The hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Jesus, the servant of the Lord, the only true blessed singer of psalms, knew that God's name would be glorified by his suffering. He knew that his forgiveness and mercy would be displayed as the curse of the cross was transformed into a sign of mercy by his flowing blood. He knew that nations would come glorifying God because he died for them. He forgave those who crucified him, those at the foot of the cross, for he knew that they knew not what they were doing. They couldn't comprehend. He knew he knew that his eternal priesthood would be established by that sacrifice. God's name is mercy. And when we forgive and are forgiven, his name gets all the glory. And so, remember, as we wrap this up, this point up, you're forgiven. In conclusion, again, book three, big picture. There's no king, there's no temple, we're all in exile. The world is going to H-E double hockey stick in a handbasket. God must be judging his people. The promises are broken. The crown is in the dust. Where do you look? Look at God's character. Look at Exodus. Look at his name. Go back to basics. Go back to God's grace and mercy. And at the beginning of book four, the first psalm of book four will be the one and only psalm of Moses in the entire Psalter. If you want to be a mature Christian, firmly rooted in your faith, grounded in the steadfast love of your heavenly Father, get back to basics. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive, for you are forgiven. And God will receive the glory. You will be transformed by his grace as you are sanctified. And you will grow in wisdom, in holiness, and in faith. Let's pray. Merciful God, you humble us again and again and again by the offensive word of the cross that our sin was so great that Jesus had to die, that he had to bleed, that he had to suffer. We should be ashamed, but we are not because our shame is transformed into rejoicing by your spirit who fills our hearts, who allows us to believe and to receive the gift of his forgiveness in the cross and the gift of new life in his resurrected and ascended glory. In his name we pray. Amen.